Hello and welcome to Four for State, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from TRCR in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. In our last show of the year, we return to a topic not far from the top of most journalists' minds, succession. Well, actually, we're returning to the original source material, the Murdochs, and in particular, Rupert Murdoch. It's fair to say it's been a challenging year for Rupert. The fallout from the Dominion case is still reverberating around the world. Fox News has lost its major star, and if that wasn't enough, he is apparently now retired and transitioning to a life of leisure. Add a failed and very public engagement to the mix, and one can say that 2023 was a very bumpy year for one of the most powerful men in the world. A new six-part podcast series from Swartz Media called Rupert the Last Mogul asks a big question. Just who is Rupert Murdoch? And I'm pleased to say we have the host of the series here. Paddy Manning is a journalist, author, and now podcast maker. His latest book is called The Successor, The High Stakes Life of Lachlan Murdoch. Paddy Manning, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Anthony, thank you. Okay, so look, um, Rupert, he's retired. He's got the gold watch. He's now walking along the beach, enjoying the fruits of his labour. It's fair to say our fascination with the Murdochs, but Rupert in particular, is not diminishing. Uh, What for you was the fascination for going back to this story? Well, I started, I suppose, I had just written a biography of Lachlan Murdoch. And so that came out at the end of last year, uh, called The Successor, and did pretty well. And, uh, And I'm also... You know, full disclosure, doing a PhD on the history of news corporation at Macquarie University. So a full century of news, uh, the history of the company from 1922 to 2022. And so I, but the missing piece there is Rupert. Uh, And I got approached by Schwartz Media to say, would you be interested in doing a a podcast on the life of Rupert. And so uh, Sarah McVie, who's the new head of audio, was inspired by an economist uh, podcast uh, on the life of Xi Jinping, uh, which took off. And she said, someone needs to do a proper job of a a six-part narrative podcast on the life of and legacy of Rupert Murdoch, well before anyone had any idea that he was going to retire this year. So, um, so it was her idea, and I thought that will dovetail beautifully with the research I'm doing on the history of the company, uh, and and so I said yes. And look, you've written extensively about the Murdochs over the years, but here you are working in podcasting. What for you was special about telling this story using audio? Well, I did work for a time at Background Briefing at um, RN and loved it. Absolutely loved it. I thought it was, um, I thought it was a great medium. It's, you know, a different form of sto- storytelling. I'm a print journalist by background and written, you know, written books and it, but but that uh, impact that you get from talking to people and hearing their voice, I, I just, uh, you know, uh, and the whole craft skill in putting together. A, a long form bit of audio. I just loved it. And so I was kind of, I, I think listening to the um, Economist podcast on Xi Jinping, uh, I, I learned a lot and I thought, yep, the, the, if there's one story that can sustain um, people's interest, if there's a life, if you like, that can sustain people's interest over six um, episodes, especially in Australia, it is the life of Rupert Murdoch. You know, he has had an incredible... Um, you know, 70-year career, 
and uh, and I thought that even over six episodes, you would you would not, but far from running out of material, uh, you were gonna you were gonna struggle to to compress it all and tell that story. And I just thought uh, it was a bit of an adventure, to be honest. I I, I did I've never done a narrative podcast before, uh, and it's a very different beast um, once you start working on it than than producing even a even a knockoff, uh, you know, background briefing. Uh, but I but I. But I, as we got into it, um, I came to understand it's a really great medium for trying to trying to understand a person. If you've got a focus, it felt to me that with with six episodes we could tell different chapters um, of of the life of Rupert. And if we got to people that had first hand experience with him, uh, that that was a great way for us to be able to tell his story uh, in the absence of obviously being able to talk to Rupert himself. I mean, one of the great things about uh, about podcasting and about audio, about radio, is the immediacy of of conversation. You you can reach out and connect, and 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 ideas and I guess emotions can be expressed in a way that the written word can't. There's also the economy that goes into audio, where there's a lot of stuff you just can't fit in. How did you how did you grapple with that particular aspect of it? Because you would have had a mountain of material, and you had to you had to basically distill it down. Well, um, the answer, the honest answer to that is, I'm hopeless at it, and uh, and that's where the excellent team came in uh, to save me from getting lost in the weeds of the detail from the you know excessive research that I always do every time, um, which I think is comes from my training in business journalism, which is that you end up getting captured by the detail and I always want to put the detail in and um, the fantastic producers that I was working with, Sarah McVeigh I mentioned already was uh, the EP, uh, Eric Jensen took over from her uh, as EP one when she went on maternity leave, um, Shane Anderson formerly of 2SER and also the ABC uh, was uh, produced me and actually recorded me in the studios and they were constantly getting me to delete detail. I would want to go back to, you know, I have a tendency to think of the life of Rupert in terms of a series of business deals. That is not what they wanted to hear from me. Uh, and that it's not what they wanted me to interview people about. They wanted to get to his character and wrestle with the big themes of his life. And so with a hell of a lot of, um, you know, uh, kind of cattle dogging, they managed to get me to do that. And, um, and yeah, so they were, a, that, that, at that team, honestly, it was a revelation working with them. I loved it. Well, let's talk a little bit about the man. I mean, uh, you know, Rupert was born into wealth and privilege, but it's also a remarkable story in lots of respects because, you know, he went from being a press baron in Adelaide to being a global media giant. Uh, in those early years, what was driving him? Uh, well, I think in the early years, it's that sense of... Um, you know, being against the establishment. Mm -hmm. So um, Rupert's career uh, really begins with the death of his father and he's thrown in the deep end uh, himself. Um, in, in 1953, uh, he, his father died, Sir Keith, um, himself a you know, powerful media figure, um, uh, died in 1952 and Rupert takes over as a director of News Limited um, in 1953. And... He had a sense, you know, without getting lost in the detail again, uh, he had a sense that uh, the, his inheritance was robbed from him by his father's old company, the Herald and Weekly Times. And 
because Keith, when he died, although he was the, uh, you know, controlled a national media empire and had played a key, key role in building it up, he hadn't, he didn't own it. And it was, and in fact, what he, the, the small meagre assets holdings that he'd been able to assemble with his own money were, you know, two companies, basically, um, News Limited, uh, which owned the Adelaide News and a few other little things, uh, and, uh, and Queensland newspapers, which owned uh, the Courier Mail. And the Courier Mail was reclaimed by the Herald and Weekly Times to settle Sir Keith's debts. And uh, that was, you know, through negotiations uh, with the executor of Keith's estate and uh, and Dame Elizabeth. And Rupert was in England finishing off his studies at Oxford. And he believed that if he'd been in Australia and been able to, he was only at this point 21, um, if, he'd, if he'd been in Australia, been able to handle the negotiations himself, uh, that he would never, he would have been able to uh, preserve, you know, the Murdoch family's holdings in both um, Queensland and South Australia. As it was, um, the Queensland assets were um, lost to the estate, and and Rupert moves to Adelaide to take over the news. And but he has this burning sense of injustice that you know that comes from uh, the way his inheritance was kind of, as he saw it, taken from him. And I think, and then you have this picture that, uh, you know, it was an ed- it was eye-opening to me of a state um, which is, you know, we think of the gerrymander of Queensland and Joe Bioki Peterson. The, t- the Playford government in South Australia was effectively a one-man dictatorship. They had a gerrymander that which meant they couldn't lose office, even if Labor won 50, high 50% of the vote. So, um, so uh, th- it was rigged and the judiciary was rigged. And and Rupert and his um, editor Rowan Rivette launched a, against the Adelaide establishment, and and so that anti-establishment is a is a kind of fire that was lit in Rupert, um, and has burned really in a way, um, all through his seventy years. And this is Rupert at his most likable in lots of respects. He, you know, he's returned home. I mean, he's got a reputation for being a bit of a lefty ratbag. Uh, he, you know, he, he he forms up a tight partnership with his editor. They they do fight some big battles, uh, and one and one of one in particular. That stage of his life, what was your impression of him? Yeah, he was de- definitely left of centre. The Adelaide News was the most small L liberal newspaper in the country. Uh, it um, it was partly it was not just about Rupert. It was also about Rowan, his editor. Uh, and and in fact, we we made some use of a, a, an unpublished manuscript, which we described as like a 1950s version of Succession, um, that Rowan wrote, uh, and which his daughter shared with us, uh, his daughter Real. Uh, but um, but yeah, but to, as a double act, uh, Rupert and Rowan at this point were prepared to, as I say, take on the establishment, but also take on the Playford government. They were anti. Gerrymander. They were pro um, Asia. They were um, uh, anti the white Australia policy. You know, they were um, that. This was, you know, progressive is like a bit of a modern term, but this was a progressive paper, and um, they were described as two blasted young Reds. Uh, so, yeah, it was a campaigning paper, and that's where they they they, they go into bat on behalf of an Aboriginal man. Um, uh, 
Kumanjai Stewart, who uh, his that name is for cultural reasons, but you know uh, he he. Uh, he was accused of raping and murdering a nine-year-old white girl at a beach in 1959 um, in South Australia called Sejuna. And they took up his, they believed he was wrongly accused and, and had, had a, a false confession had been ex- extracted out of him by the police. And, you know, South Australia at this point was known as the hanging state and they went into bat for him. And, you know, an unpopular cause, but they took it up and they, and they actually got his sentence commuted. And it is an amazing story, but this partnership didn't last, did it? Um, and, and this seems to be a familiar theme that, uh, that's throughout the podcast, that Rupert is fine when it comes to moving on and, and breaking alliances, breaking relationships, breaking friendships when it suits him. Yeah, and that's why we thought that this episode in his career was worth focusing on hmm. uh, because he was able at the end of the day to put um, – any feelings? I mean, Rowan Rivette had not only been his editor at the um, Adelaide News through the 50s at a time when they built the circulation up. Uh, I think they trebled it. Uh, they, uh, But he was also, had been, you know, the man that Keith had um, asked to mentor R- Rupert when he was over in uh, England, when Rowan was also based there. So, uh, so... He was, he had a, he was like family. Rowan was like family and Rupert's ability to sever ties when he decided that, okay, the paper had probably gone too far uh, in taking on the Playford government and they needed to kind of back off a little uh, and that they needed to, uh, he needed to, because at this point, by now, at the end of um, the uh, 50s, he's expanding into Sydney. Uh, he's he's bought assets around the country and he just needs the Adelaide News to be a cash cow. And that's what Rowan accuses uh, Rupert, actually, of just wanting the Adelaide News to just spit out money so he can buy, um, buy up more papers, including at that point the Mirror in Sydney. And Rupert's response is to ax him. And I think that you can draw a line from that decision. Uh, Rupert's, Rupert's, you know, even even someone thirty years his senior, uh, Rupert will will say, uh, he's the boss. He's going to have to. Um, he, he will have the final say. Uh, no, no one will ever be more powerful than him inside the empire. And you can draw a line there from you know a whole all, all forward through um, through. Uh, there's a whole line of dismissed editors. Uh, that you know that follow uh, through Rupert's career, um, right up to if you if you want to, it might be a long bow, but you could even point to Tucker Carlson's being sacked, you know, from Fox mm. News, um, you know, their biggest star um, this year. Uh, there is there, uh, I've said before, I think it's an iron law of the Murdoch Empire that yet yeah, no no one is indispensable. And the flip side of all of that is that, uh, and, it, and again comes through in the podcast, is that he's someone who values loyalty and can be fiercely loyal, but it does seem that loyalty is um, limited. Yeah, the question of loyalty is it, it is a major theme inside, you know, in Rupert's career, and uh, and ultimately uh, there is there is actually a if you if you pick over. Um, you know the people that have worked most closely with him over the years. Uh, there is there is a kind of um, trail of not destruction because these people have all had a fantastic ride working with Rupert. They've enjoyed great influence. They've enjoyed. They've been well paid. Uh, but at a certain point, um, their 
you know, that time runs out. And you, there are people, I think, in, the, in Rupert's wake who have just been sort of jettisoned and, uh, and who feel that they gave loyal service but the loyalty wasn't necessarily repaid. That doesn't mean they're bitter. That just means that they're kind of, um, you know, the Murdoch caravan has left them behind. And, uh, and I think that, um, you know, Rupert, there are people that have worked and we interviewed some of them that have, that have worked for Rupert Murdoch for decades and, um, and do think of him as family. But uh, at the end of the day, he is the he is the proprietor, and he has as one um, as one former Murdoch executive, Kim Williams, um, said in uh, in the podcast, he can be clinically ruthless, and uh, and he and he certainly has that streak had that streak from the from the very beginning. Well, let's talk about the Australian newspaper. It was something obviously very close to Rupert's heart, and he gave it a hundred percent. Tell us about how the paper started and how invested he was in it. Well, it was a dream of his father's, and uh, and uh, the way we saw it was, um, it was in some ways Rupert had a had an ambition. He, he already owned tabloids, but he didn't have a broadsheet, and uh, it was not just an exercise in bringing Australia together by putting out a national paper. And you've got to bear in mind that the Financial Review had had just started up. Uh, so, so he sort of had a competitor, in it, if you like, um, but 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 he also uh, he had a um, a kind of I think a desire, in some ways, to answer those critics, including his own mother, um, Dame Elizabeth, who who kind of turned their nose up at the tabloids, and so he wanted a quality paper, and. Uh, and it is to this day the only paper that he has launched uh, successfully, and which which is, you know, approaching now its 60th um, anniversary uh, next year. And uh, and yeah, this was a paper that reflected Rupert's politics at the time. You got to bear in mind, um, you have had the Menzies government in power since 1949. When he launches it in 1964. Um, there is a sense of uh, change. Uh, I, I mentioned that he was an opponent of the white um, Australia policy. The early um, Australian was uh, quite progressive on, you know, campaign to save the Great Barrier Reef, for example. Uh, it was, um, you know, still had that commitment to, um, you know, covering Aboriginal disadvantage and, and, um, and, um, you know, I don't think the word reconciliation was in the in the kind of lexicon at the time, but uh, it was a quite a progressive um, uh, paper on Aboriginal affairs. It was anti the Vietnam War. Uh, it was the only paper that was um, early and loudly against the Vietnam War. Uh, it was, uh, you know, progressive on women's issues. It had a women's desk with serious reporters doing stories on professional women and not just, you know, life life at home. Uh, it was, it was a progressive, um, paper. And of course that comes, comes that the culmination of that is backing the Whitlam government, the election of the Whitlam government in 1972. And Rupert, it lost, it lost buckets. Well, and, yes, I was about to say that it's lost yeah. you, uh, $300 million or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. In today's money, if you, um, that was a figure actually that came from Mark Day, one of the journalists that we, one of the former, um, journalists and edit, senior editors, um, 
for Rupert, who um, who at the 50th anniversary came, said that, you know, at that time in 2014 dollars, um, the the Oz had probably in the first 30 years uh, lost 250 million dollars and then gone to maybe just wash its face if you took into account um, all the years that it did make money. Um, so it had probably it did get it did become profitable in the end. But it's then, you know, now, like, uh, as I understand, um, I mean, they don't publish figures, but uh, it's, you know, like most legacy newspapers, um, struggling to make money now. And uh, so why did he persevere with it? Um, why did he persevere with this loss-making proposition as a, you know, um, if he was only concerned, if he was only concerned about uh, making money and putting the business first, why, why did he persevere with this? Uh, with this brave new broadsheet that was, you know, expensive and um, and losing money, and the only thing you can really put it down to, I think, is um, is a desire for influence, a desire for political influence uh, that um, that the broadsheet did give uh, to the Murdoch media. And look, let's tease that out a little bit because I think that's one of the interesting aspects in the podcast, like. It seems that the initial drive was to complete that work that his father never was able to do, but it's also fair to say that his father in his time was viewed as a kingmaker. So this is, again, so it's not only completing the, the task of, of having a national paper, but he's also using the paper in the same way that his father might have if he was around. Yeah, I think it's a real characteristic of the um, of the Murdoch media that you do pick a side. Um, that you and and that kind of crusading journalism that is evident in the Adelaide News, mm. um, it there's a that's a kind of that's a kind of trait that runs through from the Adelaide News to the Australian to the Sun in Britain to Fox News today. Uh, it's it's um, a, an attempt, I think, to not be wishy-washy and stuck in the middle, but to have a, you know, to be clear in your uh, reporting. Uh, and also partly a, a sense of what it's become, uh, and, and I think this is where the territory gets more um, fraught, is that it's become a sense that the whole media, you're against the whole media and the whole media has a small L liberal or left of centre bias and that you're providing a correction uh, in your coverage in the Murdoch media be, by giving it a kind of conservative slant. And, uh, and I think that is, that's a kind of, that's a shift from where Rupert's thinking was at the beginning. Uh, and I think his own politics have clearly changed, like all of our politics change and evolve. Uh, and I think they changed quite sharply in Britain, actually. And, and you know, that we saw that in the support um, that the Sun, in particular, gave to the Thatcher government. Um, and that led to the, you know, what was described in our podcast by Roy Greenslade, the former Guardian meteorator, as um, the best bit of root business that Rupert ever did, which was the whopping um, mm. strike, uh, where he locked the unions out and, um, you know, introduced computer, uh, computerised the, you know, printing process uh, and and did, out, did about 5,500 workers out of their jobs, uh, but made super profits as a result of that. 
Uh, and and I think that the other, the flip side of, of of kind of picking sides is that Rupert has learned over his career to use the propensity of the of the media um, to kind of anoint a, a, a government. Um, use that for business advantage. So he comes up with a business model, which I've seen described as trading regulatory favour for political favour. That's a very powerful business model. Um, and it, and he's perfected it. Now, he to do that, you can't always back one side because then you become predictable and you end up... So, so Rupert has expertly, actually, and, um, you know, over the years, changed from... Labor to Liberal, uh, but I think it's if you if I think I think he has he's backed Blair. Um, he you know according to Michael Wolf's book, The Fall this year, you know all of the Murdochs apparently voted for Obama in two thousand and eight. Uh, you know so he's so he's um, and he, he, as we show in our podcast, you know we talk, discuss how he backed the Whitlam government, the most left wing government we've but ever I, had. But I wonder, I mean, and look, that definitely is throughout his career that I, that ability. To change sides, to chop and change, a bit mm. like the way he can chop people out out of his life, but has it calcified in recent years? And maybe because of things like Fox News, like I, I don't see the Australian getting behind Albo at the next election. I don't see Fox News saying, "Well, Joe Biden's actually delivered a strong economy during troubling times. We're backing Joe." I don't see that happening. No, um, I think that um, I mean. The the position, you know, there are there are differences within the Murdoch media, yep. especially if you look globally. Um, you know, Fox News and the Times of London are not on the same page. You know, on a whole lot of issues. You know, whether it's climate change, Brexit, whatever you like. Um, but you know, uh, but so so you don't want to say that there is a uniformity. Mm. Um, that is kind of artificial. That there, there isn't. There is a diversity of opinion. But I do think that the weight of the Murdoch media is to drag both Liberal and Labor to the right, mm. and um, and so that you might be willing to swap on occasion from um, you know conservative to a progressive. You know, say centre right to centre left. But the centre left has been dragged to the right. So um, whether it's Blair uh, or whether it's um, you know, arguably Obama, uh, you know, you you have got uh, a pro-business, um, a very pro-business uh, left of centre party. Um, and, and I think that, uh, yeah, I do think that whether it's calcification or polarisation, you know, that has, that has affected all media, partly because of the rise of social media, uh, I think that uh, yeah, the 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 the, posi- the ideological position of the Murdoch media has hardened um, over the last ten to fifteen years. Hmm. Well, look, we, we've kind of established that Rupert's you know has been in a sense completing his father's work. Let's look at the successor, Lachlan. He, I'm guessing the relationship Lachlan has with his father is very different. I mean, Lachlan won't be motivated by completing his dad's work because uh, Rupert's done it all. Rupert's done everything. So what drives Lachlan? I think Lachlan is much more of the business person than his father. Uh, and it's it's exactly right, Anthony. Like, Rupert exceeded his father, I, I would say, at least from 1987. By the time that he's reclaimed the company, he's bought the company, Herald and Wheatley Times, that his father used to run, uh, and he's... Um, 
and he's now launching off by that time by that time in 97 he's got he's launched into Britain and America uh, and he's launched into television uh, in a big way with the um, setting up the Fox television network in the United States and buying 20th Century Fox he he has by any measure exceeded anything his father could have dreamed of so so from that point in the mid 80s uh, until now um, Rupert has has been, you know, blazing his own kind of trail. Lachlan does not have, I think no one would expect Lachlan to exceed Rupert. Uh, you know, there was a line when when Rupert, one of the defining deals that, you know, we, we don't get to talk very much about in the podcast, but in 2017, Rupert comes up with a plan to sell the bulk of his media empire to Disney. It's uh, a, a brilliant deal. Uh, and it's the culmination of many. He sells off Sky, he sells off um, Star, which he launched in Asia, um, and he sells off the film and film studio, uh, and and a stake in Hulu, the streamer. And he sells all that at a top of the market price. And all of the, you know, they it's a seventy billion dollar deal, and all of the his he endows his kids, all six of them from from you know his three marriages at that point. Uh, um, Four marriages, sorry, to Jerry. Um, he 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 endows each of his kids with um, stock and cash worth two billion dollars. What Lachlan? There was one. There was one line at you know a well placed source at one at that time said Lachlan was seeing it as a little bit like Rupert's challenge in 1953 that he inherits one. You know, because Lachlan takes over the rump of the company after the bulk of it is sold to Disney, Lachlan takes over Fox Corporation, which is just really like Fox News and Fox Sports, the main businesses and, and like a set of local television stations that are left. And uh, and he he um, Lachlan was seeing it at the time as this rump company is kind of in some ways analogous to the to the uh, kind of slim down empire that was given to Rupert. Um, back in 1953, uh, but yeah, I don't think Lachlan wants to be the kingmaker that Rupert or Keith were in their careers. I don't think he aspires to um, be the all-powerful kind of interventionist editor in chief of the Murdoch media. He keeps uh, he's very guarded in. He doesn't speak very often. He only recently talked about anti-Semitism in the wake of the October seven attack in Israel. But he. But he he makes very uh, strategic uh, and rare kind of public interventions. But his view is that if he starts kind of sharing his views widely, they'll be parroted across the media Murdoch media empire. There will be less diversity of opinion in the in the media empire that he runs, and so he tr- he tries not to do it. But I think it's also the case that he doesn't. You know, he doesn't want to be making editorial decisions across all those different media assets that he controls on a daily or weekly basis. It's not what drives him. What drives him is the kind of business of the media and the strategy around it. And uh, so I don't think, you know, Lachlan Murdoch didn't even meet Donald Trump until 2019. Uh, So, you know, he, he, although Rupert and Trump go back decades so uh so i i yeah i don't think lock i think lachlan will be quite different um everyone always asks oh is he left of his father or right of his father and i think in some ways it's probably you know in some ways he's both you know um 
he 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 is right of his father maybe on uh you know Chris Mitchell in uh his memoir making headlines said he was Lachlan was right of any usually right of his father and right of any Australian um, politician had a conservatism more rigorous than any Australian politician. When I was writing my biography of Lachlan, the people in Lachlan's inner circle that I spoke to were you know insisted that was not the case. He, they said he was socially liberal and economically conservative, uh, and uh, and his politics had always been that. But he wouldn't you know, uh, endorse um, one side or the other, you know, whether it's Republican v Democrat or Liberal Labor, he was never going to come out. But then he does something like he puts Tony Abbott on the board of Fox Corporation. You know, this is one of the most divisive conservative leaders in Australian politics, uh, without question. And an ardent climate denier, um, he's just played a key role in, you know, uh, the voice referendum here. Uh, and and he's onto the board of Fox Corporation. So, you know, what does that tell you? What does what does it tell you that all of Lachlan's political donations in the U.S., for example, are they're all to the Republican Party? Uh, so, yeah, I think that there are some issues where Lachlan is going to be more uh, conservative than Rupert. But he's going. To, but if you look, I mentioned the sacking of Tucker Carlson this year. I'm benching, I should say, because he's still, I think, as I understand, still under contract to Fox. But if you look at what Lachlan's actually done in the wake of the Dominion settlement, there is a kind of reining in that's happening at Fox News ahead of this most consequential presidential election in our lifetimes next year, uh, and and. I'm, I'm, you know, having spoken to people at Fox News and Fox Corporation, um, I'm sure there is a deter determination not to uh, again repeat the same kind of uh, baseless, you know, stolen election claims uh, that were not to let them go to air that led to the Dominion settlement and which could lead to the Smartmatic settlement soon. But we've seen also that if the audience demand that narrative, that they're they're willing to provide it. Yeah, well, that that is um, that is that's the confounding, ultimately kind of cynical um, decision that uh, not just Lachlan, but Lachlan, Rupert, the leadership at Fox News, uh, even directors of Fox News, they all grappled with how do we, you know, to get to be fair. It was an unprecedented situation where you had a sitting president uh, complaining that an election had been stolen. But they, what we saw in the the evidence discovered through the Dominion case and all of those documents and text messages and emails, what we saw is that none of the executives or leadership or key network talent, whether it was Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity or Laura Ingram, none of them believed that the election had been stolen. None of them believed that these um, uh, claims from Sydney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, he's just been found, you know, he's going to have to cough up $150 million if he's got that. Um, you know, none of these, the, none of them believe those lies and yet they let them go to air. And uh, and there was one email from, uh, in particular, from Suzanne Scott, the head of Fox News, to Lachlan where uh, she said, we're going to plant our flag and... Uh, let the audience know that we respect them, and as it as we as we found out, respecting the audience meant lying to the audience, telling them what they want, even if you know it's not true. 
I've got time for two more questions. So look, one of the ones I wanted to ask you is Rupert's retired, and we know that re- retired is in inverted commas, but his days on this earth are finite, just like all of us. Um, when you look at News Corp and you look at uh, how it embodies him, does news survive without him? Well, there's an instability in the structure of the ownership of News Corporation and uh, and Fox Corporation, the two arms, the two separate arms of the Murdoch Media Empire that were split in the wake of the phone hacking crisis, broadly into newspapers and cable, the US cable television business. And the way the structure works is that there is a Murdoch Family Trust, which owns about 40% of the voting shares uh, of both companies. And uh, that trust has eight votes on it, four of Rupert and four of the younger... Um, sorry, the el- uh, the four elder of his six children to his first two marriages. That's um, Prue, um, Elizabeth, James, and Lachlan. And, uh, and those four, when Rupert dies, will have to decide um, how to vote those shares uh, because Rupert's votes will effectively expire. And so there is no provision for a tie break. It's a structure that was insisted on by Anna Murdoch when she had her divorce, Rupert's second wife and the mother of Lachlan, James and Liz. Uh, it was a structure that she ensured. So basically, no, um, only those four kids would decide the future of the, um, of the Murdoch Media Empire and not any subsequent kids that Rupert had with, um, as he went on to do with, uh, with Wendy Deng, uh, Grace and Chloe. So, so that structure creates the potential for a you know, you know a unresolvable conflict um, between the siblings and when I was writing my biography of Lachlan I was um, firmly guided uh, to write as I did that the that the siblings were basically biding their time that when Rupert Rupert controlled the business until he died and when he died uh, there would be you know, there'd been previous reporting by the New York Times, which suggested the siblings were going to sell out. They'd sell out to Rupert and Lachlan. But uh, I was told that was there was no longer a desire to do that, that they the siblings um, believed that there was um, it was not about a, a profit and loss. It was not about a balance sheet. It was about uh, or making money. It was about uh, they, they were determined to reassert control of the Murdoch media businesses and do that in a way which protected and enhanced democracies around the world rather than undermine them. And that was the, that was the you know, background intel that I reported in my book and, uh, and which got the most media coverage when the book was launched. And I still think that is the dynamic. There is um, a prospect... It may not happen, but there is a prospect that when Rupert dies, the siblings will roll Lachlan uh, and uh, vote him out. Um, you know, it would take time. It doesn't, you know, one analyst said to me, it's fair to assume that the day Rupert dies is the day Lachlan gets fired. That's a shorthand. It's not going to literally happen. But there would be a process by voting the shares at the next, uh, at, at a annual meeting or extraordinary general meeting of Fox and News of rolling uh, Lachlan as the um, as the CEO of Fox Corporation, and you know, I think if you look at succession, one of the takeouts for me of that whole series was the impossibility of succession. That's kind of what they were getting at. 
can anyone else hold it together? It's very hard to it's very hard to see though that business, Fox and News, even if combined, um, existing given all the structural challenges that face media businesses for another fifty years or another hundred years. You know, it's very hard to see how that stays together. Uh, Michael Wolf's reporting is that um, the siblings want Liz wants uh, Liz just wants the family to sell, sell the whole thing. Uh, I, I don't think that. I don't think that's the case. I think that's. Um, I don't think Lachlan intends to sell it. Uh, I do think that they that there is a kind of rebalancing going on uh, in the editorial coverage ahead of this um, election next year, and I think that is the bigger picture. How does uh, Lachlan and the board steer that um, business through this next presidential cycle? Look, finally, you've now finished Rupert, the last Mogul podcast. Um, do you have a better understanding about who he is? Hard to sum. It's hard to sum up. Uh, you know, a life like uh, Rupert Murdoch's. Uh, I, I, I think that he is brilliant. Uh, a business genius. Um, there are. Um, I didn't get to go into the deals. Um, as much as I, you know, would like, but I'm fascinated by them and how, by the mechanics of how he managed to take this one company uh, and uh, with a whole team of people, not just Rupert, not a, it wasn't a one-man show, uh, but how he has managed to take that small company and turn it into the world's first global media empire. I'm, you know, and I'm up to my neck in researching that history. Yeah, there's no question he's a business genius. Uh, he has definitely uh, changed through his life, um, but he had a uh, the young Rupert, uh, the the young, the left of centre Rupert, um, had had huge, well, as one of his um, Les Hinton actually uh, said to us, he also had huge balls. You've got to say uh, the uh, ambition and. Uh, Willingness to gamble, um, uh, are just you know, well, historic. You know, uh, in in that one individual, um, I, I remember talking to Chris Wallace, the uh, political scientist and uh, and author, uh, about she wrote a biography of Jermaine Greer, and um, she had said when she wrote that biography that there were the two most consequential Australians of the twentieth century were. Rupert Murdoch and Jermaine Greer, and there had been plenty of books about Rupert, so um, she was going to focus on on Jermaine. I, I think that um, Rupert has also gone through, inevitably, a decline. He's been, there's a rise and fall in this story, um, and that there was there's a peak in the early two thousands before the rise of social media, before um, you know, before phone hacking, before the Disney sale, before Dominion. Uh, there's a there was some kind of peak in Rupert Murdoch's influence, which uh, I think, you know, can be argued. An example of the influence was the Iraq War, uh, that you know, and the overwhelming support that the Murdoch media, whether that gave to that war, whether it was whether it helped tip the balance in Australia, the U.S. and the United Kingdom, uh, in favour of that war. Uh, but. Um, yeah, as a man, 
Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Joe Biden calls him the most dangerous man on earth. Um, I think that there are people who have worked for him who have been certainly been uh, on the receiving end uh, of that that ruthless streak in Rupert, but also people inside his family that you know he has he has whether it's Anna Murdoch or whether it's uh, his own son James now who's kind of all but estranged. Uh, there has been uh, um, there's also been a downside to the incredible wealth and power that he's accumulated over his career. And it's been felt by some of the people closest to him. Well, Paddy, it's a ripping podcast. And can I say a perfect uh, summer listening experience for people out there? So, Paddy Manning, thanks for being on Full for State again. Anthony, thank you. Thanks for having me. Paddy's podcast is called Rupert, The Last Mogul, and all episodes are now available. And thanks for listening to Full for State. This edition was recorded at the studios of Tourist Yard and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Forfa State is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Forfa State on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is ForfaStateAU. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening.